Hey everybody, welcome back to Improv Town. I'm your host, Clayton Mashad, and uh, I have a great episode for you today. Talk to Tim Mahoney, and normally on this podcast we talk about, you know, how to be a, a better improviser, maybe how to be a better improv teacher, but in today's episode we talk about the elusive question of how to turn regular people into improvisers. So we talk specifically about teaching 101, so teaching students that aren't improvisers and you know hopefully by the end of the class they are so tim mahoney is a veteran teacher he teaches a lot of improv 101 in fact he actually taught my improv 101 class way back in the day and so uh it's an awesome episode if you've ever wondered oh you know i could i could teach like i could make people better improvisers but i'm not exactly sure how you go about taking people who aren't already on board with doing improv and uh you know how do you make them improvisers we have a he has a lot of great advice we talk about a lot of games that you use to kind of slowly but surely corral people into the improv world uh and just so you know i have a great episode coming up next i get to interview dave rozowski who is a studied with Dell Close, was the artistic director of Second City Hollywood, who I was lucky enough to take a workshop with today, the day that I'm actually recording this. It won't be today when you're hearing it, but it was today, and then a few days ago, he was kind enough to allow me to interview him. So that's going to be a great episode coming up next, but today's episode is also fantastic. All right, as always, if you like this podcast, rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts, and enjoy. Let's get started. Do you want to start by talking about how you got into improv and your background and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see. I started improv uh, about five or six years ago now. I got into improv kind of <laughs> pretty late in my life, in a sense. Uh, I've always loved comedy um, forever. I've been kind of like, uh, I hate to use the term comedy nerd because it's you know, a terrible word. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, always was huge, huge into comedy. Big fan of, of SNL and like all of that. And so much so that I, you know, researched where those people got their starts because I was just intrigued by like, you know, how do people do this for, for a living? Or like, how do people come across um, those types of, of gigs? <clears throat> and... Um, all throughout my life. This is probably started, I remember in seventh grade is when I really remember being like, oh yeah, I love this. Because I was watching Saturday Night Live with my dad and my brother. We watched every week. We lived in Illinois at the time, so it was on at 1030, which was which was sweet because, you know, I was a little kid still and I wasn't allowed to stay up late. But I never was, thought about the fact that it's kind of like football in that way of like, that it is, it, since it's live, it, it's like, yeah, it's not... Because it's all because you know on the East Coast it's all as late as it could possibly be. Right, right. So yeah, it was live in Illinois. It was on live at ten thirty at night. And looking back on it now, I remember watching this the episode. I, I couldn't tell you who the host was or anything like that, but we were sitting there watching, and the episode got interrupted um, because Princess Diana was killed in a car accident. And like I remember being like, wow. This was before DVR and everything, too. So I was like, man, 
they like cut to the news for the rest of the night and the Saturday Night Live wasn't on. Like I was a selfish seventh grader. So <laughs> right, like, you were way more oh, is, yeah. way more upset about not being able to watch Saturday Night Live than the fact that Princess Di died. I didn't know who Princess Diana was, but I knew who Will Ferrell was, and I was like, I want to see. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, this is. I, I, I wait every week to watch the show, and I remember th- even like now. I remember that so clearly, being like, bummer. I'm gonna miss this show that I love. And like I look back on it, and that's when I was like realized I was like, oh yeah, I really do do enjoy this so much. And, and you know, Saturday Night Live is an improv, but it's the beginning of like my uh, introduction into like really loving comedy and all things all things comedy. Um, and then I just kind of like wanted to be the I never wanted to be a class clown. I thought class clowns were like the worst. Was like they're constantly like in need of attention and I was like I don't need the attention I'm just going to be subtly funny like I'm going to be that guy who's like you know just I, I wanted to like I wanted to create things like I wanted to create like do work you know what I mean in, this, in a sense like I didn't want to just like goof off like I really wanted to do things so um, you know alter school and everything I would write like weird skits and, and you know not knowing anything about how that stuff works uh, just write weird skits uh, and stuff like that and then in high school I did a show called Escapades um, and I wrote a bunch of skits for that it was like a big 11th grade uh, variety show uh, <laughs> and I wrote a bunch of like weird skits like there's a river in, in Wakefield Rhode Island called the Saugatucket River and we did this skit called the Saugatucket River Dancers and we got like all of the larger gentlemen in our 11th grade class to, to put on some kilts and, and dance around the stage and like that uh, that skit was really really fun and I remember being like oh being silly is like this is this is a fun thing it's like it's kind of freeing in a way to like not give a shit about what people think about you and that was always a big thing for me too have, being a kid that moved around a lot like I was always very concerned about what people like thought of me and I remember in that moment being like oh well just be just like do what's fun for you and like other people will get on board or or so I thought and still think um you know and then okay so now fast forward to college blah 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 college was a nightmare for me I was had like eight different majors and three different schools and blah 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 um and didn't do anything didn't do any comedy writing didn't do any improv um, but in the back of my head, I was always like, you know, I, that's what I wanted to do all the time. I, I knew it, in, even though I wasn't doing it, you know, you, you have to, I was in college basically because I didn't want to get yelled at. Um, <laughs> and once I like made the decision to, to, um, to leave school and I, I was a little upset with that because it wasn't, you know, things weren't going well or whatever. Um, and I stumbled into improv at the Contemporary Theater Company here in, in, in Wakefield. Um, it's a, you know it's a semi-professional theater. They do scripted work and improvised work and all sorts of other things. Um, and you know Christopher Simpson is the artistic director there, and I actually went to high school with him. We didn't you know, hadn't talked in who knows how long, but kind of found my way back. Um, and I originally started doing improv. At, at the CTC because I wanted to do stand-up. And I was like, well, this will be a great <laughs> way. Yeah, yeah, I don't think the CTC prepares you. There's not, yeah, there's not much preparation for... No, no, it's not. No, but I was like, you know what? I just want to do something that's like comedy-related 
and get back on stage like and get comfortable being on stage again because I was always pretty comfortable on stage but I hadn't done it in so long so I, I took an improv class and I had an awesome teacher uh, Ryan Hardigan was my, te- my 101 teacher um, he's become an excellent friend of mine we're in a couple of different groups together and we perform all over the country when we can and, and things like that but um, yeah I took the class loved it um, always knew I would and then once I started doing the classes, I I really, really, really enjoyed them. It was fun. It was like, okay, not only am I doing the thing I want to do, which is um, improv and comedy, uh, but I'm also meeting, like, new people and meeting interesting people and, like, seeing how um, collaboration was and being part of a team again was something that I really enjoyed. And that is kind of the thing that I think caused me to to stick with it I really enjoyed uh, you know once again like stand up is a a lone wolf game Um, there's not much collaboration happening there it's pretty competitive and what I found in the improv world was that that collaboration was something I was also searching for and that was really cool that was a cool moment to have to be like I really enjoy working with other people to create a thing, whereas before I just didn't have those people to create with, you know, I, I didn't know, so therefore I didn't know that I needed, that I wanted that, that uh, collaborative spirit to be there, um, so yeah, I, I, and like I said, I, I took the class to, to just get comfortable on stage, and I was going to do stand-up, I had planned to move to Denver, I was like, I'm going to take one class, I'm going to move to Denver, and start doing stand-up there. It's got, a, like, an up-and-coming comedy scene, and, you know, it'd be a good place to start out. This is, like, this is my grand scheme. Um, you know, cut to a year later, <laughs> I'm still taking classes at the CTC, doing improv, you know, uh, upwards of four or five times a week at this point. Um, one of the best things about the CTC for, for me was that just the access, you know, I could take multiple classes, I could take workshops, I could get on stage once a week. And that's so rare in in the improv world and industry. It, you know, a lot of places it can be four years, if ever, that you'll you'll see some stage time. And for me, um, being an impatient human, uh, that was a really nice thing, you know, to be like, oh, after after six months of taking classes and you know, I just wrap up level two and I'm getting asked to jump in shows and things like that. And, and so the access was there and that was another thing that, that really caused it to stick, I think. So that's kind of how I got into improv, in, in a sense. Yeah, it's a little bit convoluted, but I found my way there. And, and all along in the back of my head, I kind of knew that I was going to love it. Um, and I'm a rather, I have a rather addictive personality, so I was maybe a little leery to like, jump into this hobby that I knew would consume me, but I, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Because I'm like, I know once I start this thing, like I'm going to want to do it all the time. And like, uh, maybe to the detriment of my health or financial stability or, uh, like education or whatever, but I did it anyways. And I'm, I'm, you know, very glad that I did because it's opened a lot of doors for me and, and brought me to places that I would have never, uh, never gone to or, or been to, uh, you know, had I not uh, done that, so. Yeah, I feel the same way, like, when I usually, usually when I get into something, I get super into it, but then it's very short-lived, you know, like, when I got into rock climbing, I was, like, rock climbing, like, every day, 
but that was for like a two month period and now I haven't done rock climbing in like a year. Yeah. Whereas like improv is the only thing that I got like super obsessed with and then like years later like still and yeah. still just as obsessed with it. Well and I think that's the beautiful thing about improv too is that you can never or I at least I think you can never perfect it, you know? So like right. for me, like I really love math, but at the same time, like I blew through math real quickly and like there's a there's a right answer for every question you're you're uh, faced with whereas with improv there's just infinite possibilities you know every every word or movement or facial expression or whatever that comes from your scene partner is has infinite possibilities you know um, and that's one of the, the really fascinating things for me and I think the, another thing that keeps me like sticking to it even when you have you know or I have like moments of like lulls or, or plateaus or whatever you want to call it, you know, um, just like playing with new people and, and seeing like new ideas like form so quickly is, is really exciting and that definitely keeps me, keeps me going. So Right, yeah. Like you could just, you could just study like the Herald for years and then once you figure that out, it's like there's, then there's still an infinite amount of forms that you could spend an infinite amount of time trying to perfect. Right, right. And, like, I, you know, I, I kind of... I'm glad you brought up the Herald uh, because, like, that's, like, kind of, you know... Uh, I think formats are really funny <laughs> because everything's a format. Uh, you know, I think it's... You know, some groups really get, like, glued to a particular format, but, like, the Herald was invented by somebody... You know, just like every other format, and then every nuance or everything you tweak is a new format, and everything, you know, how many, I can't even think of how many formats have arisen out of working on a different format, <laughs> you know, it's, and that's what I like, it, there is no end, really, to um, the possibilities, so you can't ever, like, you. I feel like you can't ever get ahead of it, it's kind of like, uh, that Indiana Jones movie that I've never seen that has the ball in it. <laughs> the rock that's rolling down a hill. Like, in a way that, like, uh, if that rock was super positive and fun, like, to me, that's like, uh, you know, improv, I guess. It's like, always, like, constantly moving and, and like, chasing and, and, and things like that, so. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then you can always invent your own form and then, and then it, uh, spend all the time trying to figure out whether it works or not. Right, right. And, and that's the cool part is like, you know, you can rehearse and, and, and train all you want, um, but sometimes until like you get in front of a live audience, you're like, oh, this we, we, this was a great idea. Like, and then it, it just, it could flop on you. It could like turn into nothing or it could turn into something amazing, you know, and that's just, I, I when I get snobby about improv and I'm talking to people like I want to, sound like I, I know what I'm doing. I always say, you know, improv is the most, uh, it's like a firework, you know what I mean? In the sense that it's there and gone in that moment, and like, it's, uh, everything affects it, you know, despite the fact that we could pour the right chemicals into a cardboard tube and shoot it into the air and expect one thing to happen. If the wind is different in that moment, or the light, you know, the, the moon is brighter than you expect it to be, or there's clouds, or, uh, you know, whatever, um, that changes, 
that changes the final outcome, no matter how much you think you know what you could potentially happen. It's it's constantly changing in real time. So I'm sure there's a like a word, a vocab word that I could have used to uh, eliminate the last four sentences I said, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't think of it right now. So yeah, cool. So and then um, then you've been teaching for a while, right? Yeah, I. Well, I kind of, it was weird because I kind of got fast-tracked into teaching. I had been doing improv, you know, I finished level four, and the next thing I did was teach 101. I was, I guess I was a TA, I was a co-teacher um, with a, I forget who it was, but they were a pretty experienced teacher, and I kind of learned, you know, how they ran their class, took notes on, on what they did and what I would do different, and what I would do the same, and, and all that. And I've all, you know, I've always loved teaching in general. I love teaching people new things. I'm fascinated by the way people learn, and I mean, I am a, a teacher in my my day job is teaching as well. So I teach improv during the evenings and teach elementary school during the day. <laughs> and I, I love, you know, but I get the same kind of joy out of of both of those things, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, so I've been teaching improv now for three years, uh, probably. I've taught various levels, uh, you know, at, at the CTC particularly. I've, I've taught, uh, they have levels one, two, three, and four. I've taught all four levels. Um, but the one I, I enjoy teaching the most is 101, uh, is level one, for sure. Uh, it's, it's the best. I love getting a new group of people that have never experienced this thing that I love so much. And getting to share that with them and, uh, you know, have them teach me a lot as well without, you know, necessarily knowing they're doing that is a really cool uh, byproduct of that. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool, yes. Yeah. So let's talk about teaching level one or 101, whatever, uh, whatever they call it. Whatever you want to call it in your theater. It's all the same. Level one, 101. So, I've never taught improv. I always... To me, I feel like level one would be the hardest to teach, because like I know a lot about improv, but I feel like all of the things that I have to teach about improv would be to people that already know, a, who are already like on board, and like can at least, like if, if, as long as you're at the point where you can do like a crappy scene, I can help you do better scenes. Like gotcha, you're not, yeah. you know, you need to listen more. You need to agree more. You know, you're not reacting to this person's posture. You're being too coy. You know, whatever advice that you could give people, but but the people have to already, they are you know they kind of already have to be comfortable to people walking on a stage and just making stuff up together. Yeah. So I guess the thing is like, how do you, how do you, like I feel, yeah, I feel like I can help people make better choices, but like first you have to get them to just be comfortable making any choice yeah so like how do yeah. you <laughs> definitely um yeah you know I think that you have to have to teach I know a lot of people great improvisers that uh don't the teaching 101 is like a nightmare to them because they're that's for, for the exact reasons you said like how do you right I, I know like oh you could have you know the choices you could have made in this moment like that would have uh, heightened the scene um, or X, Y, and Z, right? Um, but in one-on-one, that's like the last thing you want to say to a person. Like, 
well, you could have, you know, there's a lot of choices you can make, blah, 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 and, like, you're just going to put them instantly into their heads, which they already are, because they're 101 students, you know? Let's see, I've taught, oh, I taught you 101, now that I think you did, about it. You did, teach, <laughs> you did teach my 101 class. Yeah, and um, I don't know if this was the, the same class, but I've had, you know, students as old as, like, I think my oldest student was 85, I had an 85-year-old woman um, taking improv for the first time in her life, you know? And she was wonderful and, like, very inspiring just to, to have, like, the the stones to get up there and do a thing, you know, at that age. Like, it's got to be tough. Um, and I think in that same class, we had a 13-year-old kid. Like, we had a 13-year-old boy in that class. So we had a 13-year-old and an 85-year-old in that <laughs> class. And that's what I love about 101 is you get this really diverse group of people who don't necessarily, like, want to pursue improv is like even maybe it, it might not even be a hobby for them you know it, it might just be like hey I got a gift certificate to this class and I decided to take it with you you know and that that like that's happened before and it's like well how do you how do you make this fun for that person who has no idea what they're walking into and, you know because in any one-on-one class in any given one-on-one class you can have that person, you can have the gift certificate student, <laughs> you can have, you know, the student that I guess would have been like myself, who has wanted to do improv for 20 years, and they right. finally, you know... Who, like, already has the UCP manual, and, like... Yeah, who, yeah, yeah, who read who the UCP they're... manual for fun way before they did improv, or even thought about doing it, you know, like, yeah. Those, those, those assholes those who guys. then think they're smarter than the teachers. Yeah, I don't know what that's about, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, and then you get the people who are like, well, I, you know, uh, especially at the CTC, they're like, well, I've done a lot of scripted theater, um, and I want to I take this improv class because I think it'll help me be more flexible within that right. um, setup, with that structure of, of doing scripted work, and it definitely does. Um, I, you know, I think one of the coolest things about the CTC is that it, uh, it does do both, you know, on, on a Friday night you will have your main stage scripted show happening at 7 o'clock and then at 9.30 an improv show goes down. And that's really cool and a lot of times it's a uh, um, significant amount of crossover between the two shows, a lot of people doing both. And it, it's helped the scripted work for sure because it helps those people uh, um, with, with flexibility. But anyways, I'm, I'm uh, digressing into a whole other thing. Um, Teaching one on one, and what did you ask me? You asked me about like how, how do you? Yeah, how do you like get people? Yeah, so with other classes, you're obviously like you're making improvisers better improvisers, but in one on one, you're turning people who aren't improvisers into improvisers. So like, right. how do you? Well, it's pretty systematic, actually. Um, I will if all the one on one level one classes that I've ever taught. The first three weeks are pretty much the same every time. After that, depending on who's in the class and, and how the, the first three weeks went, um, we can tinker with it to, to give the, the students exactly what you know we think they need. Um, but those first three weeks are specific. And the, in those first three weeks, we are teaching them that failure is, uh, is not only inevitable, but it is um, encouraged and, and like a sought-after thing almost. Because I feel like every time... I mean, for, throughout our entire lives, we're taught that failure is not, not an option. 
Um, that's a bad thing, and for, for the most part, it is. Right. Um, right. Everywhere outside know, of improv, it is a bad thing. And you know, if you take that too literally, failure in improv is a bad thing. Like you can have a failed improv scene that is not fun and not good, right? But we're talking about momentary failure, I guess. Um, and to so the first three weeks are really about breaking that that construct. Um, and we do that through games, you know, uh, just basic basic games, games that are designed to inevitably fail, you know. So we play a game called. Uh, you can call it the name game if you have a 13-year-old in your class, but it's called Mindfuck. And, you know, the first level is we're going to toss a ball to, we're going to stand in a circle, toss a ball to a person across the circle and say their name. And then do that for five minutes or whatever, you know, until everybody's done it a bunch of times. And it's like, oh, this is easy, right? Everybody's got this. This is easy. We've got this under control. Okay, cool. Um, next, next element to that is going to be uh, we're going to, you know, point at the person, a different person and say the name of a state or whatever you want to do, you know, and then you keep adding these layers and layers of things until it cannot be done anymore. And, you know, sometimes some groups will get to like three or two even and just go, ah, I can't do this anymore. I can't even, you know, um, but you keep doing that with them and you do it so positively and make sure that, you know, it, I guess it's easy to say, make sure they're having fun, but when I teach, I, I do all of this with with the class. You know what I mean. Uh, I'm a big, not a big fan of like sitting in the uh, in the audience and like you know, kind of running the class from from a seat. Um, I like to participate in a lot of the the games and handles and stuff that we do early on to get people comfortable and like failing with them because I I am terrible at that game. I love watching people do it because I'm, I'm so amazed when they get past like three levels of nonsense. Uh, and break into like a fourth level or a fifth level because I lose it at three, you know. I, but I think it's important for your classes to see that and know that like you're not just failing to make them feel like they can also fail. You're failing because you're really failing. Like you're really at your capacity for what for what you can handle in this in in, the, in this given game, right? Um, so I think by doing that, it, it immediately m lets them feel more comfortable, you know, um, especially to have a teacher fail alongside of you. You know, that wouldn't work in a math class uh, to, like, sit down and be like, all right, we're going to do algebra today. And, like, everybody, you know, let's work on question number one. Cool, we all got it. Question number two, I'm going to do this one with you. Oh, shit, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> like, all right, well, you're a terrible teacher, right? But in improv, it's it's different, and it's you know it's beautiful in a way to to be. No matter how experienced you are in, in improv, you are going to fail on a momentary basis all the time. Um, yeah, and to have your class see you do that, and see you do that honestly and earnestly, and still have and joyfully. I think goes a long way. So there's a lot of that in the first three weeks. And obviously you give them things that, like, they will succeed at to a certain point. You know, especially, you know, we, were, we don't do much scene work in those first three weeks. We do a lot of, like, they remind me of, like, Boy Scout camp, like, icebreaker type stuff, you know? Right. And make the, get those people comfortable 
with with each other. You know, they're going to be on this eight week eight week for us. It, it's an eight week class, an eight week journey, figuring this thing out, or you know, not even figuring it out, but just like wrapping our heads around it a little bit, like trying to get a little bit of a handle on on what we're doing. So. We'll play, like, we'll start off with a lot of that stuff, you know, uh, name games, word association, things like that, to get to get going. And then we'll jump into, probably like week three, we'll start to, uh, uh, my, my background um, comes from uh, Keith Johnstone's uh, improv teachings, you know, um, it's a more narrative background. But, and that doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's just the what I was was trained in initially. Right. Um, so we work on just like a little bit of storytelling, but in a still in a very gamey way, like one word at a time story, or like story die, um, which is you know you, you point you line them up like a firing squad, and then you point at them and they keep telling a story until you move your hand on them and point at somebody else. And if they screw up or flub a word or you know stumble over some words. You shout die at them, which can be a little bit intimidating, I guess, at first uh, to some to, to people. But if you you got to remind them, you know, do it joyfully and and like when you die, like make a scene out of it. Go ahead, like die however you want to, um, and let them have fun with that. And I think like I feel like once you get past that fear of well, you never really get past it. But once you get past, like, that initial fear of, like, oh, if I screw up, it just doesn't matter. Right. Um, and, and obviously, we're talking about one-on-one here, right? Level one. Like, it, it doesn't, at this level, it should never matter. Like, um, I, I am a big believer in not giving any notes in one-on-one. Unless they will, unless a specific student wants notes. I'll always say, like, if you want notes, come talk to me after class. Um, but otherwise have fun, be yourself, play characters, do what, you know, whatever that means to you, do whatever it means to you. Let's have fun because if it's not fun, there's, if you're not having fun, there's no way failure is ever going to be fun. So yeah, it's kind of just like, it's hard to explain. Um, this is a good question. It's really hard to explain. Like just, it's have fun with the class. Like, create an environment where it is fun to fail. Yeah, this game that, uh, you know, the Joe Zombie, you know yeah. that game? Uh, so, I don't think we ever played that really, like, in, I don't remember, like, when that got introduced, but I feel like it was kind of recently, like, that, like, that I was shown it for the first time at CTC. And I feel like that's, like, a perfect game. It's kind of, like, the perfect metaphor for, for like the way of embracing failure, so I'll just explain it. Obviously, we, you, you know it, but I'm going to explain it for the audience. Yeah. So everyone's in a circle, and there's a person in the middle, and they walk with their arms outstretched, all zombified, towards a person, and that person who's you know being attacked or whatnot has to make eye contact with someone else across the circle, and that person, uh, so they make eye contact with someone, and then that person says a different person's name, and the zombie redirects. And so obviously, like, you don't want to get attacked. The point is to not get, you know, eaten by the zombie or whatnot. But, like, but if you do, and then if you do, you become the zombie, right? And it's just, it's, it's like the, I feel like it's this weird irony where, like, the funnest thing to be is the zombie. 
So it's like, but the whole point of the game, you're like, oh, I can't get attacked by this zombie, and like you get bit, bitten by the right. zombie, and you're like, and, and you're like, a, you know, everyone's like initial reaction is like, oh man, I like lost. Right. But it's like now, now you get to do the funnest thing. Like exactly. the failure is leading. It's like leading you to get to be do the funnest part of the entire thing. Right. Right. And that's it, yeah. Teaching that that freedom to fail is such an important thing. Because, man, if you're worried about failing when it happens, which is an inevitability, we, like we said, okay, you're going to beat yourself up about that, and then it's not going to be fun for you or for anybody else on stage. Like, the audience is going to feel bad for you because you look like you're struggling in a negative way. The audience loves to see us struggle positively and with a smile on our face, right? But they don't want to see us, <laughs> like, actually upset with what, what's transpired in, in any given scene, um, and yeah, so, once again, just figuring out what uh, what types of things make people comfortable with, with that that inevitable failure. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting to, to teach a class and have one of the first things you say be like, well, you're going to screw up and you're going to fail and that's inevitable. And it's like, okay, <laughs> isn't this what you're teaching? Like, you know, we, we, you're a teacher, you're not really supposed to tell us, like, the outcome of this class will be failure. <laughs> That's not a good thing. But um, it is. And every one of those failures, like I said before, every one of those failures that you have uh, or mistakes that are made on stage, you know, when you when you flub a, a line or say a word you didn't mean to say, you might, you know, you might have meant to say a different thing. That's what creates scenes. That's what creates unexpected moments. And that's like what, what it's all about. So... Yeah, I think just creating that environment of, of like comfortability and, and, and um, making sure people are safe uh, because everybody's different. Everybody has different limits for what, what they want to do. Um, but making sure people are safe uh, and, and comfortable. Um, and once you, you have established that in your class, it allows you to do a lot more. Um, it allows you to do anything, really. I mean, and that's for any level, I guess, but especially 101, especially 101 when you have, um, you know, newbies coming in who've never done a thing before. And you get all walks of life. I, I know I've already said this, but man, you get all walks of life in a 101 class. You know, um, it's crazy. It's just crazy, you know. And uh, it's, uh, and it's always surprising. Because the people who sometimes the people who expect to kind of struggle with it don't, obviously. Like they, they'll surprise you, and they'll surprise themselves, which is the best part. I mean, uh, and uh, yeah, I think creating an environment where those those things can happen is is the key to um, to that level one class, but and, and and doing so in the first couple weeks, otherwise. Why continue? I guess in a way, you know, if you, why would you want to continue in a thing that is making you squeamish? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I've been in taking multiple level one classes, various different places. Yeah. And it's always interesting. Like there are the people who, when you play, the, you know, like when you play the games, they're obviously like they have rules, so there's ways to mess up, which is like like what you were saying, you know, like to. So there is a, a failure point. And it's always interesting, like... I can remember one 
specific person who would like always get really upset, like flustered when things went wrong, and would maybe, and would like try to explain that they misunderstood rather than like you know. And now some of them will be in a circle, and if you like mess up, you have to like run around the ring of the circle and go back to like your original place or yeah. something like that. And like you know, there's the people that always like get really upset, like, oh, that's 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 that rule. I like. Oh, I didn't realize. I didn't get it. And they always try to, like, explain or, like, justify their failure. Mm -hmm. And then normally, you know, by, like, week four or five, or maybe sometimes later, they, they like, stop doing that and they realize, like, oh, it's it's just way much more fun if I just, like, I I lose and run around the circle or, or whatever. Right. And, like, you can instantly see, like, the same week that you see that change in the way that they act in that game, you, like, instantly see the change in their scene work of, like, they become so, like, dramatically so much... They go from being, like, very uh, to, to, like very weak players to just, like, as soon as that one thing clicks from doing that game, it's, like, all of a sudden it's, like, oh, there's such a... They're so much more free and so much oh. more, like... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see it in that moment. That right, they exactly. Get it, you know, uh, not, even, not even waiting to get them into a scene, but in that moment when they're, like, wait... It doesn't matter that I just screwed up, because I you can't screw up really. If it's like, it's like a I, I often say the square rectangle paradox. I don't know that that's a real thing, and it's been constantly disproven when I do say it. But I'm going to still say it anyways. Um, when it's like, oh, so yeah, I screwed up, but all it doesn't matter because you can't screw up. So if you can't screw up, did I really screw up? And then you can, it's, you know, it's almost like a snake eating its own tail. But, yeah, that moment of, like, nothing, it, there's a there's a really great podcast, I think, that's still going on. It's called The Zen of Improv. And, like, in a weird way, it is, like, very zen. It's like, oh, nothing matters. I am everything. I am nothing at the same time, you know? Weird stuff like that. But it really is, like, so if I say a line in a scene that, that's, you know, not really on track with what we were already doing. It just means the scene's going in a different direction. And we've created that unexpected moment that we're searching for. There's nothing worse than playing safe improv. Right. It's a, it, I'd rather watch bad, dangerous improv than safe, like, we've been doing this for three years and we're going to just give you a nice, safe show where you'll clap mildly and we'll all go our separate ways and no one will think we're terrible, but no one will think we're great. Like, no. No. Fuck off with that. (laughs) Right. Take some chances and, like, fail gloriously. Uh, My 101 teacher, Ryan, um, one of the rules... And I'll put air quotes around that with that word because it's not a rule uh, necessarily, but that's the word he used. Um, one of the rules for his narratives uh, teaching was go down with the burning ship. And I love that. I always think about that when it's like, if you're going to fail, like, fail gloriously and overcommit to that. Like, in, you know, just if you tell us that your scene is weird and then you don't like it, and you don't know what to do, or, or you, you know, you back down from that commitment at any point, the audience is going to bail on you. Right. Big time. You know? So we want to see you try and, uh, and, and go as far as you can, even if 
what you're going towards is a ridiculous notion, you know? So commitment is, you know, commitment to that nonsense is like, that's the fullest version of a scene, whether that scene is spectacular and totally like the greatest thing ever, or if it's like kind of a nightmare. But I guarantee you that if your scene is a glorious nightmare and glorious catastrophe, the audience is going to be talking about it a lot more positively than they would like, meh. I watched a bunch of scenes of, you know, improv in a restaurant, two people sitting at a chair at a table and a waiter came by, like, that happened four times tonight, great. You know what I mean? Like, oh, right. it, 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 Someone needs to be like, there's a bomb in yeah. the lasagna! Yeah, have the waiter be a dinosaur and then come talk to me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm on board with that scene, you know? Or yeah, it, like, yeah, right, that's, you know, probably bad improv to be like, there's a bomb in your lasagna, right? Like, that kind of breaks a lot of, like... Uh, another thing that Ryan always talked about was the circle of expectations that you know our scene has around it. Like that's a little outside that circle, maybe. Um, but it might be like right on the line. But that's cool with me. Like I'd much rather have you do that and make a make a dangerous choice like that than make the safe choice of like. Well, so are you guys having uh, water first and then beer? Like great, great. Twenty minutes later, you're still like you're bringing out appetizers and we're still at the, like I, I just don't. I want to see things happen, you know? And so this will, now that I'll, I'll, I'll circle back on my own here without help from the, uh, without help from you, Clay. Um, <laughs> that's you one of the best things about 101 again there is because those choices, when they finally get that freedom to fail, then you start seeing like batshit crazy choices being made. I'd much rather tame people down and be like, all right, guys, well, let's like, you know, I love that uh, we were in the restaurant and then the table turned into a spaceship and then, like, it ate itself and then, you know, all these wacky things happen. That's so much easier to to work with than, you know, somebody who, like, the uh, park bench scene where it's like, uh, ducks are loud today. Like, yep, ducks are loud today. Okay, well... We meet here every week and talk and blah. It's like, oh, God, do something. Have one of the ducks, like, be a robot that is, you know, spying on this meeting for the last year and then sending information to, like, some secret headquarters. I, like, I, you know, I, those wacky choices are the ones that, that take scenes, once again, like, to unexpected places. So. Right, yeah. And so, so the CGC does... Uh... Maestro Improv, that's like their their 9.30 Friday show. Yep, it's an it's a ITI format, uh, International Theater Sports Institute format. It's done all over the, the world. Um, and yeah, and we do it every, well, they do it um, every Friday at 9.30. Yeah. yeah, so in that one, you know, the audience uh, like votes. You know, at the end of the scene, the audience, like, by round of applause, either gives it a one, two, three, four, or five, and then points are tallied up and people get eliminated and stuff and so going back to that like you know the dinosaur waiter or like the whatever just crazy things happening the thing I always notice about those scenes is that a scene that gets a one is always infinitely better more rewarding better to be a part of than a scene that gets a two even though technically a two is a better score than a one sure because they only give you the one because they're like like they enjoy it. It went so horribly wrong, but they know that you that you that it purposely went horribly yeah. wrong. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I don't know that I've ever seen a scene in a maestro that's gotten a one that I did not enjoy watching. Like it right. might have been, for all intents and purposes, you know, bad. 
or whatever or a disaster. But man, I you know I'd much rather watch that scene than the scene that gets a two or a three. And I could right because the two is the two just then being polite and being like that was a really bad scene, but it would be rude if I like clap for one. Whereas like when they're clapping for a one, they're doing because they're like, oh man, we know we know that you know that you that that scene was a sinking ship. And we're like celebrating it, right? And I think, it, with with respect to, to Maestro, um, I think that like a one and a two is is very close. The audience knows without knowing, you know. The audience knows about like the the rules of improv. Once again, air quote around rules of improv without really ever having taken a class potentially. Because let's go back to the uh, the dinosaur waiter scene that we've. We're going to harp on I have a feeling this is going to be a running theme. Um, let's say that we don't acknowledge that, that uh, our, two, our two customers, our diners, don't acknowledge that it's a dinosaur. Or they, do, or, like, or they say something along the lines of like, oh, that's weird. We have a dinosaur for a waiter and nothing ever comes of it. The audience is going to be like, oh, boo, no. And they're going to give you a two because, like, you know, if that dinosaur waiter does something ridiculous, they're going to either, they're going to either love it or hate love it, you know. There's never going to be that like passive. You don't want a passive audience member. You don't want a, an audience full of like of people who leave just mildly entertained. You want them to either leave going, I don't know what just happened. That was crazy. Weird shit happened all night. Or you want to have them leave, leave on the same note. I don't know what just happened. It was amazing. They're like, how did they they make all that stuff up? Uh, you know, at the, at the drop of a hat. So, yeah. It, and I it, once again, we'll circle back again here. Um, that's that's all about freedom to fail. You know, um, willingness to to put yourself out there and and fail gloriously and make things happen as a result of that. You know. Um, it's the best part. So this is just uh, this is a slightly off-topic question, but I just thought of it. Would you? This whole uh, thing has been off-topic. I am the king of going off-topic quickly. <laughs> would you? This is right because you were talking about the audience response. Would you rather like? Would you rather play in front of an audience uh, of people who have seen a lot of improv, or not an audience of people who have never seen improv? What do you? What do you think is? I'd rather easier. play in front of an audience that's never seen improv. And I don't really know how anybody, any other improvisers feel about that. Um, but I say that because... Improv... An audience full of improvisers is cool. Well, that's, I guess that's a whole other... Yeah, it's like people who have never seen improv, people who have seen improv, and then improvisers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I guess... Sorry, yeah, yeah. I was immediately thinking of, like... Well, because, you know, I mean... <laughs> A lot of a lot of shows are performed for audiences of improvisers, of and like, uh, which is the worst. I have the worst audiences, and I'm I'm often that person in the audience. Like, oh, that was a really, really savvy move that they just had in that improv scene. It's like, God, like if I, if I went back and told one out, like I would never, I hate myself if I went like could like look at myself doing that. But it happens all the time, you know. To me, I'm like, ooh, kudos to them for that that callback or whatever, you know. But an audience full of people who don't do improv is like, how did they what? How did they remember that 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 apple was you know a gift from the king, and it was going to you know it, it had the secret of eternal life in it or whatever you know, like, I I like 
Um, I like that audience of, of that is never. Once, were you saying? I'm sorry. See, off topic again. Were you saying uh, an audience full of improvisers or? Well, originally I just yeah. Originally I did it like I just met people who have seen improv and people who haven't. Because with people who haven't seen improv, you cut you know you kind of need to explain at least somewhat. But then and then as opposed to people who have because I do think that like there is something about those first. It's you can be so it's it's so much more easy to be impressed when you're like a virgin to improv. Like I remember like some of the best shows that I've ever seen. Um, were obviously like early on, like when I first started going to shows. Like even before I took level one, I went up to UCB Sunset and saw like their musical, uh, like their musical and I was like, holy shit, that was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And then, um, and then Large Mouth Bass for Pig, which I have now performed with. I don't know, a dozen times at festivals and various places, but the first time I saw them perform, I was like, holy shit, this is the most mind-blowing thing, and now, like, now I perform with them, and I could probably don't even, you know, like, now yeah. it's like knowing how the sausage gets made type thing, it's like, but I remember the first yeah, time... You still love, you still love the sausage, you know, like, that's the thing. Yeah, like, that's I still how I love like, the sausage. <laughs> That's how I, I can t- like. That's how I know I, I love improv so much. Sometimes, like when I when I'm in those like periods of, of those lulls and like plateaus or whatever, um, I'll see a group and I'll just be like, man, how did they pull that one off? Like it was that was amazing. Like they were on that. Like I, you know, to be on the edge of your seat in an improv show after doing improv for a long time is is probably kind of a rare thing, but it still happens to me quite a bit. Like I love it, you know. Um, yeah, I listen to. Uh... On, on Miles Strauss podcast, it was him and Craig Kikowski, and they have, he has like the set at the end of it, and I listened to that. Those ones are like kind of hard to listen to because it's just him at they're in a theater and it's just mic'd. It's not like improv for humans where they're like, you know, in a studio. Yeah, yeah. And so like normally the sets are like hard to listen to just because, and they're still doing physical improv that you don't get to see. You don't get to see the edits. So like a lot of the times it's hard to follow. Right. But I was like, I'm just going to like sit down and like really focus and like really listen to it. And obviously like Miles and Craig are like gods of improv, like studied with Dell and been doing improv like between the two of them probably for like 50 years. And for longer than improv has been being done. Yeah, if you combine the two of them for longer than improv has been being done. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was one where like um like it ended up having this crazy like at the beginning it was like a father and a son fighting about how the son didn't want to play the tuba in the band and then and then it kind of cut to the single like what do you want to do and they ended up like he wanted to be an actor but then they school they they wouldn't let him he got kicked out of the school production of Art Town so they put on their own production but then at the end they like I think it was Craig did this awesome movie where he like turned the whole everything that had happened in the middle crazy story into a dream sequence and it like tied back to the beginning of like so what do you mean you don't want to play the tuba and like oh so it was like, like real time like five minutes went by in the entire you know what I mean like uh, if within the scene but like there was like this this cut to this huge I, I really yeah that's awesome but you like but yeah but yeah but it, I don't think I don't think either of like neither of them knew that it was happening at the time but I don't think the other person expected it at all like right 
But it was just like, oh man, holy crap! That's, that's like that's an insane. Well, and I, I think, so good. When once again, like I love watching stuff like that because ultimately, what that boils down to is somebody just made a decision to do that. Right. It doesn't didn't take planning. It didn't take. You know, it just takes one person making a decision, and the and in this case, the other person going, "Yep, that's it." I mean, that's all it was, you know. But at the same time, it, that's easy to say, right? Like, all you have to do is say, "What the building blocks of improv?" Yes, and like that's all you got to do is say yes and, and build on the thing. But man, is that hard sometimes, you know? Uh, to 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 teach, like, just agree with the person, you know. It, in within your character, whatever that means, agreement doesn't have to mean saying yes necessarily. It just means agreeing to the reality of things, right? So you're saying yes to the reality. You're not necessarily saying yes to the physical or you know verbal. Right. Yeah. You're saying whatever. Yeah. At least saying yes to the player, even if you're not saying yes to the character. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So just that's uh, yeah. You're right. I mean, that boils down to just making a decision. And, and going with it and having the person and have trust obviously to trust the person to be like that's that whatever decision they make I'm on board with um, all things that can't be taught in 101 <laughs> which is what we we're going to talk about <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so Rachel Mason has this who's like the she's you, you know who she is but for the audience she's I think she's 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 a head of she's the head of the Second City Advanced Studies program, um, and so she has this cool metaphor that it's kind of late to bring up now, but I but I feel like it's appropriate to talk about in an episode in an episode where we're talking about one hundred and one, uh, where she like talks about the levels of teaching improv, which is like first you teach people just how to make choices, and like fart <laughs> is a good location, like. Yeah. And then it's like you teach them how to make good choice. You teach them how to make choices. Then you teach them how to make good choices. Then you teach them how to make the best choices, um, which is super important because I feel like if it'd be easy to kind of go into level one like naively, have it not taught him being like I'm going to teach them how to make good choices. Like I'm going to teach them how to do good improv, whereas that's probably a dangerous yeah. Thing to do. I think you'll, you, yeah, I, I think I would say that, like, feeling like, okay, I'm going to teach them how to make choices is, I would word it differently. And I would say, I am going to provide them a safe space to make the whatever choices they want to make. And once again, that goes back to that first three weeks of creating that environment of, like, we can do what we want, we can say what we want, we're not going to be ridiculed, we're not going to be kicked out of class when I can be booed up stage, right? Um, and by creating that, that environment where choices can be made, choices that will, will then be made. Yeah, so I like that though, you know, um, I like that hierarchy of, of improving people's choices. But yeah, in, in level one, you just want them to make a choice. And like you said, if the location is fart, well then the location is fart. And you know, and, <laughs> actually, and, wanna, and, and, I want to see that scene. I do too. The location is fart. What do you mean? I don't know. I don't know what that means. Just we'll, roll we'll, with it. We'll do that scene afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, great. You made a choice, and well, and who am I as a teacher to be like, well, that's a bad choice. I don't. I, you know, 
within a, a, a scene that's been going on, I, I think I would feel comfortable being like, ugh, that was a bad choice. But it, in a one-on-one scene, especially with an initiation, like, there are no bad choices. Just any choice is a good one. Once again, keeping in mind player safety, personal space, et cetera, et cetera. Like, the things... Yeah, maybe not if your initiation is super racist. Right. But other, outside of... Outside of saying the N-word in your initiation. Yeah, that could be... Uh, that would that would be a thing we'd have to discuss, for sure. Um, yeah, but you know what I mean? But exactly, like, well, within, like, the scope of, like, being a decent human. And right. Your choice is okay, right? Um, and, yeah, so... So, yeah, those games, whether they, they know it or not, those name games and mindfuck and things like, you know... Um, just clapping and making eye contact with people, which is one of my favorite. I will open every class I teach, um, and everything we. I've, every time I do improv, I like to open with just like standing in a circle and passing eye contact around the circle. That's something the CTC taught me, um, and I, I've, you know, I'm, I now live in in Reno, Nevada, and I'm working with a group out there that's awesome and like scrappy and and, and new and, and like we just got our own space and everything's really exciting. Uh, but we don't do that out there, and I, and I miss it every time when I go and perform. I, I miss it. Um, yeah. Because it really connects me with the people I'm performing with. And, and it's weird still for me. Like, every time making eye contact is a weird thing for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, just kind of looking at somebody for a second, like having that moment, and then having them pass it on to the next person. And then once it gets back to you, like, it feels good. And and I feel like I'm connected to those people, so um, that's the thing that that I think. And those are choices you're choosing to make eye contact with a person. So you're starting on a like base base level choice making. I'm choosing a person whose name to say. I know everyone in the circle's name. There's no right answer. I'm choosing a person. That's all I'm doing. So yeah, we're 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 stripping away all of the other choices that could be made and just giving you, like one choice of a, a set group of, of things, right? Um, but you're telling them it's okay to make choices, and you're giving them that power to to make a choice. Um, so in week four, when we kind of start teaching handles um, or, or improv games um, a little more, uh, if I feel like if I've done my job as a teacher in those first three weeks of creating that environment that I talk about, um, then the choices will just naturally happen. I can always tell when I when I maybe haven't done the best job or struggled a little bit with a class when I get to week four and it's time to jump into, you know, um, scene work type stuff, uh, a little bit of scene work with, with handles and games and stuff. And they're not... They'll still, like, be hesitant to make a choice, but if they're not willing to make the choice, then I, I feel like I've, I haven't created that environment um, that, I'm, that I'm hoping to. So... Um, Cool. So we talked about uh, we talked about getting them to make choices at first by like playing the games. What do you think the best way to like like the first scenes that you're ever gonna have them do, right? Like so the first three weeks you've just had them had them play games and get comfortable failing and having to connect with this, their other people and, and make choices, whether it's just who you point to and say their name or whether it's like a word association or something like that. Mm-hmm. But so now it's time for 
first see, right? First first time they're ever go them and someone else are just gonna walk up a stage and have to make up a scene. What is uh like what what parameters or that's not the right word. How would you set it up for the first time that people are gonna just go and do So there's two scene? there's two games or handles that I really like. Um to do first with, with people when it, it when it probably feels to them like, oh, we're doing real improv now. You know, now that they know what it is, obviously. They knew what it was if they're gonna take the class. But this is probably the first time I, I would think that they're like, ooh, we're like we're like making things up together as a group, you know? There's two games that I really love. One is Yes and Experts, and it's the simplest, easiest game ever. You can play with two or three people. You can play with however many people you want, I guess, but I play it with, usually I play with three people, and you sit them in a row, um, and it's not, you know, there's, you just say, you guys, uh, we have a panel of experts up here, and, and, and then you go to the rest of the class, and you'll ask them, like, what are, what are these people an expert on? And a lot of times you'll get, like, you know, whatever answers, but some will be like, okay, they're experts on whales, great. So, here's the rules of the, the, or the, 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 here's how this works, guys. You're gonna, each person is gonna say a fact. Or, uh, not a fact, but they're going to, whatever you, we're going to accept. Something they purport to be a fact. Yes, we're going to accept whatever you say as the truth. As an audience, we believe that you are an expert. So whatever you say goes. And just say whatever comes naturally to you and build off of what your your scene partners are are doing. Um, So we can, we'll do a quick one. You know, we're we're experts on whales. And the first person will say, uh, whales are giant uh, mammals that live in the ocean and swim around. Yes, a lot of people don't know, but they're afraid of the dark. Yeah, and yes, and, and they're afraid of the dark because they swim at such deep depths, that, uh, such uh, shallow depths, that, that they never have experienced uh, a lack of light. Yes, and their nose is actually where their butt is supposed to be. Right, great. Uh, and we'll call scene right there, right? So I really love this because it teaches you to, it, obviously you're literally saying yes and, um, which is a great thing. But you're also learning to... Um, build on what your scene partner is, is saying. So you're accepting their reality and using what that person said to create a, uh, to create and build a new reality. Or a, a continuing reality, I guess. Um, I really, I, whenever I teach this game, I always use the um, example of mowing your lawn, like with a push mower. Um, you know, if you mow like wheel to wheel, Right? If you mow one strip and then turn around and mow right next to the strip you just mowed, you're inevitably going to have a little strip of grass in between those two, right? You're going to miss some if you just go, if you skip and go right next to the thing. So what I'd say is you got to turn the mower around and go like halfway, wheels in, in the middle of where you just mowed, right? So you're making sure that you get all of that uh, grass trimmed. You can't, and you can't leave any behind that, that gap in uh, of unmowed grass is the audience that's audience confusion you know they're gonna say like wait how did you if we said you know uh, whales are giant mammals that swim around the ocean and then you know and you and we skip the part of like and they're afraid of the dark and we say well and they're they because yes and that's because they swim you know on the surface and they, there's never a lack of light well, all of a sudden, we don't know like what the hell that person's talking about if we if we skip any of that. So you got to build, you got to take um, what the person before you did and, and build on that. So I like that because it creates uh, 
cohesive scene work. At least, it, it, uh, regardless of how wacky it gets, right? Um, you know, whether if it's about polar bears and the polar bears end up in space, if we do it seamlessly and, and are always using a little bit of what the person before us said, that's never going to not make sense. The audience is, is, will, will, will be on board with that continuously. Yeah, there's this cool... I was took classes at Second City. I wish I could remember the specifics of the metaphor more. But it's like building a ladder and you're like, you're, you can't just, it's kind of it's similar to like you're mowing the lawn thing, but it's like, it's not like one person puts a rung and then you put the next rung. You have to like build the outside that holds those rungs together. So it's like the first person puts, you know, one rung of the ladder, but then you also have to like add the parts on the side that can, that, connect it for you to be able to yeah. put, put yeah. the next around. Well, not surprising that Second City has a better metaphor for creating scene work than I do. <laughs> it was play. even better than But what I'm I afraid of heights, so I don't go on ladders. I used to mow lawns, so that's what I'm rolling with. Yeah, but yeah, no, I really, I, I really like that. Um, yeah, because you're building, like, scaffolding, basically. You know what I mean? You can't just put, a like, another board on top, we're going to create another metaphor right now. <laughs> I think scaffolding is even better. So though. we're just going to, uh, for, the, for the audience here, we're just going <laughs> to stop asking questions and discuss metaphors for scene work here. Uh, they're all going to be the same. So imagine uh, you live in a <laughs> fart. <laughs> yeah. And you're, you're building a scaffolding. No, but yeah, I really, I, that's, that's very true. Um, and so that's, that's the first exercise that I really love for that um, because of its, its ability to create and help them uh, it helps create cohesive scenes, but it also will show you why cohesive scenes are important. Because, you know, it might be fun in the moment to be saying some wacky shit, uh, and it always is. <laughs> but when you're done with the scene, you'll probably have that feeling of like, there's something missing there. Like, that that was weird and fun, but it didn't necessarily, couldn't really follow it. Um, so yeah. yeah, I think it teaches that really well. And it's a simple setup. There's not a lot of stress. It uses those magical improv words, yes and, that people are so dying to be a part of. Um, I know, yes I, and. That stuff came off really snarky and sarcastic. <laughs> like, fuck you, yes and. That's not what improv's all about. But uh, that's not how I feel. I really, uh, I, I, um, but yeah, you know, I think that's, I really like that it builds that right into it. Um, and it emphasizes the and. Right, the yes is important, but if you don't, if you just agree, then you're just going to be agreeing and not building together. So I think the emphasis on the and is super important. Um, the second one, the second exercise, is a totally physical exercise um, because physicality is, is so important too. Um, and it's an exercise called machines, and it's it's kind of like it's very similar to yes and experts, but in a physical sense, in the way that. You get a machine. Or, okay, we're gonna be a uh, you know a popcorn popping machine. Well, that's a machine that exists. Never mind, I screwed up. Uh, <laughs> what do you, I'm remembering now what I usually say? What's a machine that doesn't already exist? <laughs> and you'd be like, oh, okay, it's a um, like it's. Oh God, I'm struggling so bad with this right now. Clay, what's a machine? I'm gonna put the put the pressure on you. Clay, what's a machine that doesn't already exist? Uh, a dog farter. Great, Clay. Uh, Clay is. Uh, you guys can see that I, I taught him everything he knows in his first one on one. Maybe I was a little too lenient. 
But yeah, so that one that's that might be an option. Um, oh, let's get some more options. <laughs> but yeah, no, like I, I've heard people say like a happiness machine or like a um, you know a, a, the machine that makes rain the raindrops uh, or whatever. You know what I mean? So <laughs> those are much better. Yeah, yeah, I like those a lot more. That's why I said them. Um, <laughs> Someone's funny. I don't know. Sometimes you're gonna fall right down. It, it happens. Let's move on. <laughs> um, yeah, so you, you'll ask one person to come out and. Uh, the first piece of this, um, let's go, we'll go with happiness machine because, uh, you know, it's starting to get dark out and that's when my, uh, daily nighttime depression sinks in. Um, a happiness machine. So we're going to ask the first person to come out and make uh, the, a movement of that machine, a movement with an accompanying sound. So maybe they'll like, uh, you know, tug their arm up and down like you're trying to get a truck driver to honk his horn. And they'll make like a hissing sound, right? So that's the first piece of the machine. And then slowly we will add more and more people to make a, a, to a machine. Not doing the same motion, doing all independent motions. And, and when we're done, we'll have five or six people up there making a, a machine that creates happiness, right? Out through, through physicality and, um, and non-verbal um, sound, right? Um, and as it goes along, you know, and then I, what I really like to do is, is speed it up and slow it down just to mess with them a little bit to get them, uh, make, to keep them thinking and stuff like that. But I, I really like that because I think, I feel like it does the same thing. You know, you have to use what the person before you did. You have to make some sense of it for the audience and for yourself and for your, your scene partners. Otherwise, you're just going to have six different people standing on stage making a, doing a motion and making a sound, right? Right. And, and it's not like, it's, it's a pretty subtle thing, but the difference between like, this is a machine and this is nothing, right? But if you're working together to create one machine, um, I think it teaches you a lot about a lot of the same things that, that Yes and Experts does, but it's a whole different skill set in the sense that you're using your body and sounds, not words. Um, it's kind of also a great first exploration into physicality um, and recognizing the, the importance of not just standing in one spot on the stage and talking to one other person. Roy, Wait, that's not what you're supposed to do. I, I think it was I think it was Roy um, Janik from from P-Graph. from Pgraph who you have uh, interviewed on this podcast before, <clears throat> who said um, I think it was at a, the Alaska State Improv Festival a couple of years ago when my group uh, Wilbur Wilbur Nielber was there with with P-Graph. and I it was taking a, a master class with Roy and and all of P-Graph, it was was awesome, and they were saying. Like, there's, they didn't name any names or, or locations or anything, but they were like, oh, there's this one theater that we visited that had two spots on the center of, like, two spots, like, standing, like, facing each other on the center of the stage on the floor that were so worn out, just two, like, worn out circles <laughs> from all, from so many scenes over the years just taking place of two people standing still talking to each other. And, like, yes, words are great and, and can be fun and, and we can use them in a lot of different ways, but when they're accompanied with, physicality and sound um, it just creates much richer uh, environments and and that's another great like I said that's, that's machines is I think is a perfect 
first foray into into physicality without getting too technical about like object work and and mime work and stuff like that. Um, you're doing that, but you're not doing that. You know what I mean? You're not right. you're not hitting people over the head with with vocabulary and dogmatic stuff. So I, I really yeah I love those two exercises. I um, <laughs> you know I think they're great. For a lot of levels, I think they they great they work great as warm ups for for a troop or a team. Um, they help you get in the group mind, even though we're not like teaching, you know, group mind really in one hundred and one. We're we're teaching elements that will once we introduce that that thing of group mind that people be like, oh, we've kind of been doing that all along, <coughs> you know. But yeah, I love those two exercises for sure. Two of my faves. Sweet. Um, so, pretty much wrapping up. Do you have any other any other exercises or anything that we haven't talked about but that you feel are important things to do in a one hundred and one class? Yeah, I mean, I I think that yeah, I do. Um, the one hundred and one classes that that we've done have had a lot of stuff. Uh, we've we've kind of like. Depending on obviously you know where you are, <clears throat> you kind of reevaluate week four, week five, and decide like are you going to go into you know with us with, with where I was teaching at the CTC are you going to go into like the beginning of narrative structure a little bit or are you just going to keep going with you know um, handles like end games to to kind of bolster the skills that they've been learning? But I I think that. Uh, there's a game, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. It's driving me crazy, and I'm looking, I should look at my notes here. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's what it is. Dolphin Training. Uh, it's oh, a yeah. weird, do you know Dolphin Training? Are you familiar yeah, with it? it's the snapping. So yeah, it, it's, it teaches, it, it kind of, it's weird. Like, when I, I remember first doing Dolphin Training in 101 all those years ago, and hating it. Being like, why am I doing this? Yeah, this is like, I, I don't mind it. being silly. Um, and I, don't I don't know that like, I've ever fallen in love with it. So I always hate. I hated it for a long time, and then when I started teaching, I didn't even really want to teach it. Um, but I had a, a co-teacher, Kate Sales, who's a great friend of mine, um, and she loves dolphin training. And she was like, "No, you don't get it. You're, it's like it's all about being supportive." And I was like, how are we being supportive? We're like, kind of like trolling this person. We'd argue about it back and forth. Uh, Kate and I have taught a number of 101 classes together, actually. Yeah, I was going to say she, yeah, she was a co-teacher of your 101 class. Um, and what dolphin training is, is you get one person on stage, and the rest of the class acts as the audience. Um, but they're, they're kind of, they're, they're quite involved in the scene. The, the, they, the scene can't happen without that. That person, and so it teaches so many elements of like what being on stage in an improv show is kind of like. If you're really in the moment and, and like aware of all the things happening, not just what your scene partners are doing, or not just what the the show at large is trying to accomplish, but it's also aware of like how the audience feels and what the audience wants and uh, how the audience is going to react and things like that. So what dolphin training is, is you get one person on stage, 
and um, before that, you decide an activity that, or a, a, an act that this person is going to have to do. Yes, yeah, so you have them like, leave the room first. You have them leave the room first. Yep, sorry. <clears throat> you have them leave the room first. And you're like, all right, what are we going to make this person do? It's like, oh, we're going to make him like sit on the chair in the corner of the room, or we're going to make them do jumping jacks, or we're going to make them like touch their uh, hand to their head, or take their hat off, or whatever the hell it is. It does not matter. Something. Not obvious, but not, like, super obscure. Have the person come back in the room and, and hop up on stage or, or into the open space, whatever, wherever you're teaching. Um, and then you just say, okay, start start doing things. And that's, that's usually what takes the longest is for them to make the first move. Because when you give somebody nothing and you're just like, okay, go ahead, do something. And they'll just a lot of times people just like stand there for a while and look at everybody, and everybody's waiting. And then, yeah, then they'll just start walking around. Then they'll start walking around, and maybe then okay, then we have something happening. So let's say they, the the thing that they're going to do is go sit in the chair in the corner of the room. Let's say they walk around the the to the opposite side of the room where the chair isn't. They're not going to hear anything from anyone. They're just going to. Str- struggle in that moment really so maybe they'll decide to change course walk to the other side of the room um, then the audience will or, the, and, or your class will say uh, will, as they get closer they might give them like a soft ding oh yeah ding, it's dinging not snapping <laughs> excuse me snapping would work too but that's not how you train dolphins Clay um, <laughs> they use bells I don't know if that's true either uh, I think they use fish. So yeah, use raw fish. Uh, <laughs> throw, <laughs> throw a fish at them. <laughs> no, yeah. So you give them a little a, a ding to kind of let them know, like, hey, that's you're getting, you're doing something right. You know, much like an audience will clap or laugh if you're doing something right. You know, or be emotionally changed in some way, whether or not it's, whether whatever the case may be. So I think it teaches you that kind of shows you like oh if I do this thing and like we're not slaves to the audience obviously but we do are we are I, you know I think there's a lot of goals of, a, of an improv show one of them is to entertain the audience that is uh, hopefully paid to see you perform um, so you should be aware of the audience and what their wants and needs are so I think Dalton training teaches you to do that in that moment it also tra- teaches the class to be supportive in all roles whether they're uh in the scene, on the sideline, waiting to jump into the scene if they're needed, or just watching the scene, waiting for their turn, for the scene to be over so they can do a scene next. It teaches that all different levels of support. And it's, it also, yeah, it's, it's giving, so it's giving them, the, the person on stage, that information that they, they can then use to find the thing, um, and I, so I think that it teaches you the beginning of like learning what game is a little bit, in the sense that like oh the game of the scene is taking place over here, right? Right. Yeah. So like, it's like oh they laughed a little at that thing. Yeah. I should do, I should maybe do maybe that's more. the interesting thing more about this scene thing. is over near this side of the room. So I'm going to do that more. Um, so it, it's like it's like entry level in, of so many different facets of improv, and I like I, I'm. Finding out as I'm talking, even right now, I'm like kind of having little, little revelations about that game. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I've never thought, I've never 
never seen the benefit of it, but now that we're talking about it, yeah, it, it can see. And it can easily not be done right. It, you know, it can be done poorly, and it can be not. It won't. I don't think it's ever destructive. If anything, it'll just be goofy and silly. But I think when you look at it at like a deeper level, and obviously, this stuff more is more for a teacher to use right now that we're talking about because you never want to present dolphin training in this convoluted of a way. Like, <laughs> all right, so class, we're going to do dolphin training. Here's what it's going to teach you. It's going to teach you a little bit about like all of these little things. Like, no, 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 you don't want to talk about that. But you, I think it's good to know uh, and good to, like, remind ourselves that, like, oh, yeah, even though this thing, like, might be weird and silly, like, it actually does have a lot of valuable lessons, even though it's not even really improv in a lot of ways. All right. It, you know, it's not It's not really scene work. It's not... It, it just... It's... Yeah, it, it's... It's an, it's a really interesting... Um, I think deeper than it, it ever like really appears to be uh, exercise. It's 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 a cool one. Um, and once again, you, you know, your students might not ever, it, probably never going to feel that way about it, it during your class. But like maybe two years later, when they're on their team, you know, they'll have the, the same kind of revelation maybe that like we're having right now about it and be like, oh shit, like I did learn a lot from that. Like that did kind of show me like, oh yeah, I need to pay attention to, to what the audience is doing all the while, like paying attention to where I am on the stage and what I'm doing and what my scene part, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot, there's a lot to pay attention to and to have a game that on the surface seems like silly and, and um, kind of, not pointless, but like just silly and, and fun to have a lot of stuff going on there. It is is a cool one for sure. So, dolphin training. Sweet. Let's wrap it up there. Thanks a lot. Yeah, absolutely, man. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Improv Town. If you enjoyed this episode, rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're in the Rhode Island area, don't forget to check out all the great local improv. Pig, the Providence Improv Guild, has shows every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at 8. The Contemporary Theater down in Wakefield is currently doing Maestro Improv at 9.30 on Fridays. And the Bit Players do Shore Form down in Newport every Friday and Saturday night at the Firehouse Theater. And that's BYOB, so that's always fun. You can also check out Improv Jones, Rhode Island's longest-running improv show, on the first Saturday of every month. That's down at the uh, AS220 Black Box in Providence. Last but not least, there's a new improv theater in town, Wage House, which has shows every Friday night at 8 in Pawtucket. And many of these theaters also offer great improv classes, so don't forget to check those out as well. I'm sure Google can help you find everything you need. See you next time.